Hello and welcome to the Medjly's podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjly's and author of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's weekly newsletter, Central Asia in Focus. The Tajik government's so-called security operation in the country's eastern Gorno-Badakhshan Autonomous Oblast, or Gabao, is continuing. The Tajik government cut communications to the region after violence broke out on May 16th, and in the time since then, only a trickle of information has been coming out about what's happening in Gabao. Gabao has been a tense region for many years. It's home to a group collectively called the Pamiris, who differ ethnically and culturally from the Tajiks. The people of Gabao suffered greatly during Tajikistan's 1992-1997 civil war, and even though fighting stopped some 25 years ago, the region has often been on edge. But it has also remained the only area in Tajikistan over which the government of President Imamali Rahman has never been able to exert total control. To discuss all this, I'm joined by three people who know Gabal very well. Zemira Dildorbekova's research focuses on the, Tamir, the Tajik Pamiri community of Gornobadakshan region and socio-religious developments within the community following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Susan Levy Sanchez, non-resident fellow at American University and, and is also the author of the book Bridging State and Civil Society in Formal Organizations in Tajik, Afghan, Badakhshan. And Bakhtiar Safara, the director of the Virginia-based organization Central Asia Consulting that does strategic analysis. Okay, uh, I'd like to ask our guests first um, about what, what information you have on what's going on out there because we have such little information. So Zamira, could you please explain what you've heard about the community and the, and, and the society out there in Gorno-Badakhshan? What makes it different than the rest of Tajikistan? Thank you, Bruce, very much for the invitation and to all of those who connected. An absolute pleasure and honor to be connecting with my fellow uh, speakers here as well. So I think if we elaborate on the events in Gordon Badakhshan, to elaborate on the events in Gordon Badakhshan, I would absolutely confirm kind of, and agree that there are a number of factors and developments that one needs to be mindful of in order to better comprehend the situation on the ground and how things unfolded, why those are happening or are shaping the way they are, as well as perhaps where those may potentially lead to and what potentially could be done to aid to remedy the situation. Often in our conversations, explanations or discussions such as this, we are, uh, we are not quite able to go into the depth of certain unfolding developments and complexities on the ground to try and avoid the simplistic narrative of the good and bad actors. And it's often due to the time limitations, just like today, for example. So it's important to reiterate the situation on the ground is very complex, given the multiple factors and various dynamics in place between various actors, local, national, international, which has been the case historically, but more so in the last three decades. And since at least the three major developments that have contributed to this, the first one would be the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, and Tajikistan as a newborn young state stepping on the road of the independence. Um, the second one would be the subsequent civil war in Tajikistan in 1992, which has seen the involvement of the Tajik Pamiri community members, along with some others, in pro-democratic attempts as part of the united Tajik opposition to the incumbent government. And, and then uh, when the contact also important development when the contact between the community, who also happen to be, as many of you would know, the Shia Ismaili Muslims. Uh, so when the contact between this community and their spiritual leader, His Highness the Aga Khan, has been reestablished following 70 years of the Soviet isolation. So each of those historical forces has really brought new or existing actors into play. 
and we see the development of various relationships and dynamics between these actors impacting and influencing um, various developments in the region and within the community. Uh, notably, we can point out several significant actors and relationships that have become quite prominent in post-Soviet arena in gorno badakhshan So the first two set of actors and relationships prominently feature in the recent discussions in social as well as controlled media. And firstly, it's the relationship between the central state authorities or the incumbent government and the informal local authorities, with a number of them being part of the so-called Tajik opposition, who by and large, gradually, and by today, has been successfully eliminated by the central authorities. This relationship is, is one of the complex ones and better known ones, which entails not only political, but economic motivations, which Susan elaborated uh, extensively on in her book, brilliantly, particularly in terms of the competition and control of illegal trafficking of illegal goods and substance. And the second one is the relationship between the local and formal authorities and the local government and authorities, with a growing number of the latter in higher hierarchy coming from outside the region as imposed by the central government. Next, uh, actors are known less so in our discussions. Usually it is the relationship and dynam dynamics between the uh, locals and the local Ismaili religious authority and the imamat institutions, the locals and the local informal authority, the informal authority and religious authority. Next, the locals and the local government, the religious authority and the local government. And ultimately, the local and central government authorities. And one of the relatively new and recent prominent actors, which has, uh, has also become, um, I mean, contributing towards the scene, it's the Tajik Pamiri diaspora abroad, mainly based in the post-Soviet space, uh, largely in Russia, as well as in Europe and the West. So the, the dynamics between these actors came to be very significant in the way they have informed and shaped, among other aspects, the community's perceptions of state-society relations, uh, including civil attitudes, the notion of civil society, as well as the sense of identity, both religious and national identity. And I'd like to also mention that none of these relationships and, you know, the actors uh, which I've discussed above were, were de developing in isolation. On contrary, there was a constant interplay between them and those feeding into each other and producing the social, economic and political or rather apolitical within the community attitudes we see, we see today. And one of the major aspects which contributed to this close interplay between the state, religious and the local actors, as well as the community, has been how Tajik Pamiris, who are Ismaili Muslims, view or came to understand their faith since their reunion with the Imam, His Highness the Agahan, and their integration within the global, centralized, institutional structure of the Imamat. Just briefly, by the Imamat structure, I mean a set of global religious and non-religious institutions headed by the Agahan that are governed or informed by the shared ethics in Islam and those among the wider community and society and humanity, such as the ethics of generosity, the care and so forth. So going back to the point of the role of the faith in these dynamics and interplay between these various actors has proved to be paramount. Firstly, 
because of the role of the imam, is to provide the religious and the worldly guidance to his followers. And secondly, for the Ismailis who come from the esoteric tradition of interpretation of Islam, the religious and worldly or the din and dunya are inseparate and are inseparable. And the ethics of Islam must inform our actions. So the reunion with the Agahan and the outbreak of the civil war, the central messages the community was receiving were around the rebuilding the peace, working without the legal framework of the state and with the government, appreciating cultural, human and religious diversity, um, including within Tajikistan, and continue striving for best education and working towards the common good of the wider humanity and this and the society in which they live. So we see a profound transformation in perceptions of the community and what it means to be a Tajik Pamiri and Ismaili today. And these transformations have not happened overnight and not without any tension, of course. These necessitated a constant dialogue, persuasion, a compromise, uh, a step forward and to back between these various actors, such as the locals, the informal authorities, the religious leadership and the local government, that contributed eventually to the repositioning of the communities and to some great degree the informal authorities' perceptions of the state-society relations, as well as their understanding and appreciation of the central messages received from the um, Agahan into their daily lives and their relationship with the state. So while we see the community largely moved on from the civil war period, despite the countless atrocities happening then too, it is clear that the central government continues to view their relations with the informal authority through the prism of the civil war. So this relationship got overwhelmingly more complex at it, as it involved economic reasons or financial revenues from illegal trafficking of goods by the actors. And hence, we recall the clashes in the past between some members of the local informal authorities and the central government authorities, including the so-called Horok events in, in 2012. Many associated those developments with the crackdown on any perceived opposition to the incumbent government or those that may impede the transition of the presidency to his son, and the Gordo Badashan being the last stronghold on the list, so-called stronghold on the list. So wow. while this remains a valid claim, it feels that the aims and ambitions of the central authorities have moved on, particularly in light of the developments and territorial ambitions of Russia in China uh, as so-called rising powers. And we see how emboldened the central authority is now working and behaving in the shadow of the greater powers who are highly authoritarian and oppressive, of course, but trying to achieve its own aims as, as the country, Tajikistan, but also the aims greater powers, such as the presence of the Chinese military base in Gordo Badakhshan, which is equally suitable to Russia or even Iran for that matter. Yeah. If I could jump in just for a minute, though, because we've, we've mm -hmm. got to keep the 35 or 40 minutes here. Um, and I want to bring some other guests. That was great, though. Thank you, because you kind of set the table and showed us that it's a very complicated relationship that they've had for years, both with the Tajik government and, and, mm. and nationally, too, with the presence. I'm going to ask Bhakti, uh, Bhakti R to come in for a second here. And you, can you tell me, can you run us up to what, what it was more recently that led up to you know, the events that started on March 16th and the problems that we have right now? I mean, what, what was the situation in, in, in Gornobadashan since last November? For instance, 
Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. And thank you, everyone, for, for invite. I want to greet distinguished speakers and all your listeners. So like I said, I'm a fan of Majlis podcast, and I look forward to talking to you. I'm very excited. So, yeah, since we last talked, uh, a lot has happened, you know, and we can actually say this, let's say, last 30 days as probably the bloodiest month in the recent history of of more. Tajikistan, you know, and it's it started all started as you know from May 14th after that so many uh, months of blockade and uh, you know the people c- couldn't agree to the Ziobekov's uh, investigation and Group 44 and everything, so they wanted to pursue to to meet again and have a protest, but everything was stopped. And after that, we we, we actually witnessed the bloodiest Rushon massacre that they happened. Uh, which still needs to be, you know, investigated. We don't know fully what happened. And second is the uh, assassination of Mamad Bokhir, Mamad Bokhira. So it's this is just this is just unbelievable. Everyone is shocked. That's I, I I still can't believe how did that happen and who did it, who implemented. We don't know. It's a cage, you know, state security alpha unit. Is it the Ministry of Interior who is you know who who who's supposed to protect you know citizens but not like assassinate this is just outrageous and uh, what is actually happening after that is even even worse so we we know it's actually a lot of experts say that it's it's turning into ethnic cleansing and you know it's not only in Gabao area we see a lot of reports that people in Dushanbe in a, in a capital being harassed by security forces they get them they ask for money you know thanks god it stopped a little bit but uh, we see a lot of reports that uh, people that are traveling to Tajikistan from all abroad, from Russia especially, they, they get the, the, you know, detained upon arrival in, in Tajikistan airports. And we see a lot of complaints even coming from Russia. You know, those people that uh, had protests, they, they, they did the statements over the Internet. They also, there is a list of people that around 500 people that has to be transferred to, to Dushanbe along with same as Alawat Shoev and Chorshambi, Chorshambi were, were abducted and, uh, you know, brought back and sentenced to lengthy prison so that, that other people, Oras Vazirbek, another leader, was also doing a video saying that he was also warned that he could be detained. So that's not only that, the detainees of Rushan is, is really, really uh, kept in a really harsh condition, you know, they're being tortured, you know, and uh, a lot of reports that some of them are wounded, even wounded, uh, light wounded in, in, in these prison cells. And we have some that are wounded, seriously wounded. They're still in hospitals in Rushan district. So that's and on top of it, we see a, a very, very harsh propaganda that's going on in Gabao TV, so-called Badakhshan TV. I don't know if it's just too much and it's airing and it's... Uh, Actually, what I, I actually listened to hours of hours of videos from this just to see what they're really saying. And basically what they're saying is you guys are abandoned. Nobody needs you. So you just, you know, under this influence of these bad people. And the only one person who cares about you, the survivor, survivor is the leader of the nation. So basically, they really, really, this propaganda is, is making people that they have basically no hope. And the last and not least, it's, it's a very bad economic situation that's happening right now. It's with a, with a blockade that has been going for so many years. 
And on top of it, now there is no internet. And you know, a lot of businesses were connected to internet for the welfare. So they don't have this income anymore. So, and that the food prices went up 20%. So it just really, it just really, really bad at what, what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Thank you, PR. Suzanne, I'd like to ask you now, um, you know, we, uh, Zamira uh, alluded to it and Bakhtiar just also mentioned too that, um, you know, these security problems are, are at least the, the Tajik government's view that it's a security problem has existed for years. Uh, you know, it's kind of gone off, on and off. This campaign seems to be a little bit different, though. I mean, we, we remember what happened in 2012, and we know that, the, you know, the situation has not improved in Gorno-Badakhshan, and there's, there's been tensions. But this, this particular, what they're calling an anti-terrorist campaign, seems to be uh, much more intense than anything we've seen from the Civil War. Any thoughts on, on why that's so? I think that the, the Tajik government, I mean, uh, I think both, Bakhtiar and Zamira gave incredible outlines of both the present day and the underlying influences, particularly the Pamiri Ismailian relationship to the Imamat. But I, but I think in terms of the Tajik government's current actions and what has happened in the past. So in the past, as Zamira pointed out, Gorno Barafshan was the last stronghold and the various local leaders. So they've kind of eliminated local leaders over time. So 2012, they assassinated Imam Nazaraf. In 2014, there were two other leaders that they assassinated. And they've been trying to get Commander Colonel Bokir out for quite a while. So th that's been part of their larger plan. I think the reason this one, in my opinion, is so much stronger is that in the past, it was, let's try to do this oh, it's not really working out. We're saying we're going after hooligans. Then they have a new blacklist of people who either fought back or protested from 2012, 14, and 18. This time, they, well, they really started November 25th. Uh, I won't go into the whole story of what happened in November 25th unless you want me to, but it started. And I think then at that point, they realized they had some support from both in my opinion, the Chinese government and the Russian uh, government and Putin. And, and let me explain that part of it. So the uh, Taliban took over Afghanistan, so there was a border issue. So both Russia and China were concerned about the border issue. Their recent actions, if you think about it, there's several things. One, the Kyrgyz um, Tajik trafficking lane has been kind of closed down from the tensions in the other route in Botkin. The Uzbek route, the Uzbeks are not willing to let the Tajiks control that route right now. So the main route for trafficking is up through the Osh region. That's one issue. The second issue is China wants that trade route and that to be controlled to increase trade of various things. And I, I imagine that they have requested that these local informal leaders that actually live along the route in Barharok, where Bukhir was, need to be cleared and controlled. The other issue is there was a tension in the family about who controls which part of what trade. So the former intelligence minister, Yatimov, was kind of controlling that area, but now that Rustam the son, Rustam Imamalai, is being groomed to take over, there's two issues. One, they want to consolidate the 
legal and illegal economy in Gorno-Barakhshan under Rustam's control. And I, I have been told by my various sources that he's very much in charge of this particular action in the region. And number two, China wants that area cleared. Number three, um, from what I understand, there was uh, this narrative that the West was trying to groom Gorno-Barakhshana's uh, uh, area of resistance that was given to Putin. So Putin has not fully supported the Tajik government in the prior actions, 2012, 14, and 18, as completely as now, from what I understand, from both sources in Moscow and, and in Tajikistan. So to sort of summarize all of that, Number one, the sun is taking over. They want to consolidate power. Number two, there are issues in the trafficking lane after the Taliban takeover. So this area became a more important trafficking lane. Number three, the Chinese would like that route and the borders to be controlled. And I think they're putting pressure on the Tajik government to make that happen. Um, from what I understand, they have supplied some of the weaponry for this particular action. Number three, Putin is under pressure with Ukraine and paranoid that the West is going to act up in various ways. So he also put a line in the sand and said, basically, Ramon, you need to pick sides. Ramon picked sides. Ramon also told him that the area was basically being that the West was trying to get them to resist. And so he got Putin's support. And so the brazenness of this action is really a confluence, I think, of both the inside domestic shifts in power, as well as the outside greater powers that are supporting that region and Tajikistan in particular, China and Russia, and the fact that the U.S. and the West have, have largely withdrawn after Afghanistan. Sorry for the incredibly long, confusing that, that's analysis. In fact, I'm going to get back to that in a second, but, but first I, we're reaching about the halfway point in the show. Um, so I wanted to... Uh, uh, mention again that um, this is the Medjilis podcast, and today's topic is uh, the the security operations in the Gorno-Barakhshan province. Uh, I'm joined today by Zemira Dildarbekova, whose research focuses on Tajik Pamiri community of Gorno-Barakhshan and socio-religious developments within the community following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Suzanne Levy-Sanchez, non-resident fellow at American University and author of the book Bridging State and Civil Society, Informal Organizations in Tajik, Afghan, Badakhshan, and Bakhtiar Safara, the director of the Virginia-based organization Central Asia Consulting that does strategic analysis. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjilis podcast and author of the weekly RFARL newsletter Central Asia in Focus, and we are again discussing the situation in Tajikistan's Gorno-Badakhshan autonomous oblast. Um, now, Suzanne, just a minute ago you were talking about you know that the the this rumor myth whatever you want to call it that you know there was some western involvement up up in gabal um you know but but i'm curious because if you look on the map uh you know I, i've seen this in other places too where they said well you know there's some hints that this is separatism which obviously would catch the ears of the chinese but realistically i mean how could this region possibly exist if it was if it was really separatist and formed out its own area they would be surrounded by you know, countries that wouldn't help them out, one would imagine. So how, how realistic is it to say they're separatists? I mean, it seems kind of absurd. Yeah, you know, I, I interviewed in my in my years in and out of the region, many people about that issue locally. And one thing that was really clear is that almost everybody I spoke with, from Colonel Bolkir to others, were not separatists. They wanted simply to have the semi-autonomous 
designation that was given to them, but they fully understood that their remoteness and, you know, the landlocked area in which they were, they had to be part of the Tajik state. They didn't want to separate from the Tajik state from the many people I spoke with. And, you know, what's interesting is even in 2014, the Russians at that time were supporting a group of women, from what I understood, and they were walking around with a petition to separate, to for Gorno-Barakshan to join Russia. And there were a number of local leaders that basically threatened them and said that they better stop because that's not what anybody wanted. And so it was these local leaders that currently the Tajik government is arresting and killing and disappearing uh, that were actually the ones who told these women to stop this separatist movement, which was just kind of a fake separatist movement anyway. And I also think this whole thing about Western diplomats or whoever supporting, you know, the same thing was said in 2014. Uh, there was a, a group of Tajiks throwing rocks at the British embassy. There was an EU delegation that was detained and accused of starting a velvet revolution that was all over the Russian press. And it feels very much that this same sort of push to say the West is trying to take over the area and and support these hooligans and traffickers and whatever else is just an excuse to actually uh, take over the the economic control of of the region. And I'd say that there's also evidence of that with the burning of the bazaar and also some of the reports of the looting that has gone on, um, as well as these current current illicit trade disputes. Thank you. Um, uh, Bakhtiar, I'm going to get to you real quick. I'm going to get to you too in a minute, Zamira. But first I want to talk about, you know, part of this campaign, um, which kind of distinguishes it from previous campaigns, besides the ferocity of, of the operation itself out there, is the government's uh, going after people, uh, journalists, activists. I mean, you mentioned some of the activists that have been sent back from Russia and jailed very quickly, uh, by the way, too. But could you talk a little bit about what's happening with, with people who are in some way connected with, with Gorna Badakhshan, uh, you know, and are activists? And, and I'll ask you about this in a minute, too, Zamira. But, but also, you know... Um, the, even journalists who, who might not be from from that area or might not really have a certainly an ethnic connection with that, uh, you know, they're they're under pressure. And it's even gotten to the point where members of Commission 44, for instance, which was formed to try to help resolve the problems and get some justice for what happened in last November. Some of those people have been detained and sent to Dushanbe and, and even lawyers now uh, who could potentially help some of these people who are being detained are also finding themselves being taken into custody. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce. Thank you. Yeah. It's. It, I. I would just. I would just say that this situation, with particularly putting Pamiri's resent Gabal, you know, resistance, everything, in the same basket that they how they treated the opposition uh, organization before, like you know, the Mamad Ruzi Iskandar, the head of the Democratic Party, who was starting, you know, campaign. He was active in political area, so he went to Russia. They jailed him and everybody who were like in his side. So that after that, we have a 2015 when the situation with uh, IRPT, Islamic Revival Party happened. So they jailed most of the people. They even jailed the Buzurg Mayorov. So everybody who was connected with this case. So now we, in this situation, we see anybody, uh, they, it's like if we go like 
with another bus now the primary is under this uh you know resistance now they they capture anyone who is uh who is related or anybody who has to do anything with this movement or you you know or or resistance uh, that 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 you can say the 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 why it's harsh is a very good point because i think there's many many factors into this goes i think the the main one is uh in a sense, the Tajik government became more uh, economically like stable, and they don't kind of they're not that much uh, rely on West for the support like they used to do. Like you know, with a lot of uh, you know loans, a lot of grants, they were coming. They kind of already uh, developed a better relationship with with China and Russian Federation. You know, even in this situation, we see only Russia. They 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 made a statement saying that these people are you know. Uh, criminal groups. China didn't say a word. I, I at least I didn't I didn't hear anything on, on this situation. So that that I think brings us to the conclusion. Maybe we'll talk later about this. And I agree with the notion of Dr. Lemon, Edward Lemon, when he said that it's time to rethink. It's time to rethink uh, a lot of a lot of policy because the government is just not willing to talk to people, and it's getting stronger economically while the people. Are losing their power. They don't even can resist. They cannot do anything. I mean, even for for simple things, they can get the whole all this harsh, uh, you know, response. And even you can see Rahman send a delegation to 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 meet Taliban, you know. But but they they don't want to talk to their own people under no circumstances, you know. And then after that, he visits Iran. He visits Uzbekistan. Nothing is told about Gabao. It's like the, these people are never existed. It's they just, and you know, if, even the water conference happened with the UN representatives. Nothing either happened. So I think it's. Uh, I think we should we should talk more about you know how international organization can you know step up the the, the game and request for at least for you know independent investigation for for, for the matter because everything was done in these thirty years to build this independent state. Uh, but by a lot of international support and money, it's just going to be gone. You know, well, the, everything, the, the whole international organization, they have to set, you know, say, hey, it's enough is enough. You know, you can you can't just blame people, terrorists, and and lock down all this civil society. Just just release all political prisoners. You know, we have we have now Fatma Mahmoud Group Forty Four. We have Democratic Party, Skandar, Zaid Said, Buzurg Mayor, Mahmoud Ali. It's a, thousands of political uh, activists now jail so i think it's just it has to be it has to be some you know unified response in in into whole situation at this point and zamira i was just wondering about the the diaspora the the Pamiri community outside of tajikistan if you could tell me a little bit about how how close they are in contact with the people up there without speaking about politics, but how closely connected are they out there? And, um, and what, uh, if anything, you know, they can do possibly just on a, a basic level, uh, aid or anything like that, or our communication to help out, um, the people in, in Gabao. Thank you, Bruce. I think, um, you're absolutely correct. So I've mentioned that the, the, there's this rise of the diaspora abroad. And of course, uh, the diaspora does keep a, a, a very close ties with the community in Gorda Badakhshan because uh, their their parents, their children, at times, um, you know, the, the closest relatives and the wider community. I mean, there is a huge sense of the solidarity within the community in terms of the community or sense of community within the community. So no, the the, the ties are very tight and close. 
what we what we've noticed however with each of those events there will be a tendency by the by the diaspora in Russia or abroad to really go out for into peaceful protest and and in front of the Tajik embassies in the respective countries and call for the restoration of the internet uh, justice and so forth the peace in the region but what we've We've seen, at least, I mean, that's been the case in 12, 2012, that's been the case in November. What has happened, however, since November is that this now is no longer the choice uh, the, the diasporas are taking because they've noticed that it is no longer effective, but also there is the targeted action from the central government, particularly where they can access those who organized or called for those peaceful protests to be deported, just like, for example, the recent events with the Russian citizens, Tajik, Tajiks, but Russian citizens being uh, extradicted back to Tajikistan and being sentenced. So there's been a larger move now not to protest in front of the Tajik embassies because there are punitive actions following by the government, but also those who are abroad, their families uh, are being targeted locally. So the, 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 then kind of families are urging not to do or involve in any action which may potentially harm the families in the country. So that means that the member family members may be losing their jobs, they may be given a false accusations, detained and really questioned for hours and so forth. So that's one issue. The second issue is that the the monetary uh, the, the the money which is being usually the diasporas would collect as as the support to the families the financial support to the families who have been uh, losing the, the family members for whatever reasons for example the, the the funeral or to rebuild their houses or whatever that's also has stopped because we've been I mean there's been an indication that when the money the the larger sums of money are being transferred onto people's accounts people who receive those and disseminate within the community get targeted and they actually are being called on and summoned to have long conversations and and at times often detained just like the members of the uh, group group 44 who then are accused of having the support from the western actors and 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 also diasporas so and of course uh, contributing towards the, the so-called destabilizing the uh, socio political situation in the country that's kind of these are the accusations they receive so at the moment even the diasporas abroad are very desperate and frustrated and very alarmed and worried and concerned about the local populations and for their health and safety, for their financial situation, for the for the because the humanitarian crisis is not far away, it seems uh, in in the region. I mean, they're still coping and trying, and no one is going to 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 say or they're scared in a way and and frightened to talk about any uh, challenges they're facing currently locally. So so the, the situation is d d dire. But what I think uh, Susan has nicely put. Uh, Susan has nicely put down is this this the shift of how things have been thirty years ago and and how they've uh, and 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 it's not the same case today and that is because of the greater involvement of the greater powers and and Russia and China in particular and government is working with impunity and not even considering to stop even though there are no longer so-called local and formal authorities that they were targeting or or trying to eliminate so so I think this this international involvement and the ambitions of those wider, larger powers have really shifted the dynamics for the locals. And in fact, 
I, at times I was I would be reflecting whether it was any other community, not even the Pamiri community, they probably would have faced the same treatment because of this larger powers involvement in the in this whole political uh, domain, uh, let alone the local developments on the ground. So I feel like there is a just like um, what Sefarumat has mentioned is that you know there is a larger dire need and hope that the international community may respond because we've also seen that. Um, the, the Russia is, is very, very highly unlikely to 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 intervene positively into trying to resolve the situation. So really, the hope is with the international community to intervene. So far, we've seen a lot of them uh, raising concerns. But really, what we need is the re-election on the ground, some measures on the incumbent government and the central government, which will have some impact. And as uh, as mentioned by my colleagues, uh, at the moment, the government really uh, sometimes does not need that Western donor money uh, because they've created a very nice and easy transaction kind of mechanism with China where there is less accountability for any money Chinese provide and it's just easier to pay off with the chunks of the land from Gordo Badakhshan. So so I think that's kind of the larger complexity to the situation that it's become international kind of, it's, it's involved international actors, larger actors uh, who are equally oppressive and authoritarian. Thank you very much. Um, but we're, we're coming to the end. Uh, we're, we could talk about this for hours, absolutely, and I would love to. Uh, unfortunately, we got to keep the podcast down to a certain limit. Um, so I'm going to ask everyone, just in um, two or three minutes each, for a response. Is this is this a watershed moment in Gornabadashan? I mean, is there any possibility of going back to, the, to what has been kind of kept the situation, not certainly not under control, but at least in check. Um, you know, dealing with informal leaders or, or, or influential people on the ground. Uh, you know, the, the government and the Tajik government and local these local people. Um, is that over? Are we done with that? I mean, is there any going back to the system that's kept the peace more or less for the last 25 years, or is that uh, is that just gone now? Um, we'll start with um, Suzanne, please. Well, I do see this as a watershed moment. I see it as a watershed moment for the reasons that they have. Uh, I, I'm told there's up to 70 plus people that have been killed in Roshan now. And there also were many killed in Karok. They have arrested lawyers, journalists, human rights activists. As Amira pointed out, they've arrested people simply receiving money. Some of that money was going to families of people who were killed or families who had people who were injured, and they're arresting those now. There was a woman from Morgab who was arrested because of that, and some of the Group 44, as Samira mentioned, were arrested because of that. So when you, you know, I think that when does this really turn into ethnic and religious persecution in a very serious way? And it's hard to roll back from killing, arresting, and torturing numerous leaders. There's also, um, from what someone, I was, it was reported to me that there were letters that were sent to Pamiri Youth in Moscow that basically said that if they sign them, these are letters of apology to the president for being involved in this other group, 24, which is designated a terrorist group, and if they will confess, they will be given amnesty. From what I understand, they will not be given amnesty. They will then be extradited by the Russian government and arrested. 
So there's been a tension in the Pamiri community to try to get the youth not to sign these letters. So I think there's a very, very coordinated effort to uh, destroy the foundation and structure socially, religiously, culturally, and economically of the Pamiris in Gorno-Barakshan. I'd say my last comments here are, what's a way forward? A way forward would be the international community puts a lot of pressure on them, as uh, both uh, Bakhtiar and Zamir have said. There's an investigation of some kind or a human rights representative that can go there. There's some mediation between the local leaders and and, and leadership and civil society and the uh, government. People are released from prison who have been erroneously arrested and blacklists are no longer, you know, there's those people are no longer on these blacklists to be arrested. Can can we get there with sort of these, as Amira pointed out, the, the, the authoritarian dictators from the great powers being the central support for the Tajik government right now? What's the incentive? So, you know, in order to incentivize the Tajik government to stop committing atrocities, in my opinion, and persecuting an ethnic and religious minority, uh, they have to feel that the international community will treat them as such a pariah that they're going to stop. And that has to be a fairly large movement. And I hope that happens. Hey, um, Zamira, status quo for the last 25 years, can we bring that back or is it gone? I truly feel that, I mean, I know that for the people on the ground, that's devastating and, and they've lost the loved and the closest ones. And it feels like the, the peace will never return, or at least, I mean, there is no peace in their souls, perhaps. But I also know that the, I mean, I've lived through the civil war myself. I've been a young uh, girl then, and I've, and I've been a, an internal refugee to go to Badakhshan from, from, from Dushanbe. And, and I know that people did overcome those challenges uh, with the messages. And as I mentioned, the, the role of the religious authorities, the, 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 the imam, the agahan in, in trying and help and nurture the community and, and grow the sense of belonging to the country, the sense of identity of being Tajik. Um, I mean, that that was a, a long and a process which we've achieved. And, and it's just devastating to see that the government really ignored all that and just decided to pursue the aims they did. But I still feel that, I mean, in the long run, His Highness the Aga Khan will continue his uh, messages about, just like he did even in the last few weeks, continue saying that, look, work with your government, work within the le- local framework, try and avoid violence, uh, replace it with a dialogue, you know. So I think gradually people, hopefully, uh, inshallah, will heal and we can live. It's, it's, but what my, my major concern is that there is no will from the government to pursue that because um, the way they treat or act now, it seems that there is no stopping until they actually get to this uh, ethnic cleansing, so to say, resolved. I'm not hopeful at this point of time, and I truly feel that the larger international pressure, international community's pressure on the government, which really will make them feel that they need to change their attitudes would be the one of the major kind of factors to, 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 to stop those processes. But no, at this point of time, I think the government is continuing working with impunity. Okay, Bakhtiar, to you. Um, any chance of reestablishing the old relationships that, that kind of kept uh, some kind of peace in the region, or is that over? 
yeah, I, I, I kind of also talk to people in the ground with my friends. I mean, they're not some of them outside, but they have the connection, the relatives inside the country. I mean, those people, they were really tolerant to what Zamira said that after, after the 1993, the civil war, people healed. And it was completely different uh, attitude. They didn't want to, you know, any violence or anything to do whatsoever because we, we the whole economy of Gabao people were kind of independent. You know, most of people worked in, in international organization, working in Russia. They built the life independent. They didn't want to, you know, sort of side squad. Didn't want to. But I don't think it's the case right now because the, every time I talk to those people, they they really it's like we we just this is just too much we can't handle this anymore but i don't think it's going to be any violence but it's at least in the mind of people it's a huge watershed like you're saying it's it's a, it's a big turn you know turning back and i think that the now like i said in my last you know podcast i think it's going to go to counter offensive at this point and and people are just just going to have to protect at this point it's just to sur- on a survival mode because either you get you know you just get you kicked out from the area or you just, you know, they, they're just going to take away your culture, you know. And, and for mountainous people, if you take the culture, you just basically eat done because, you know, you, you just this is all they have in the remote areas. You need to you can just survive individually. You have your community, you have your cultural background. And if, if they try to take this away, I mean, it just they just won't survive. And people know that it's the centuries of you know, civilization and a community set up. So I don't, I think it's a turning point and uh, the whole civil society is going to regroup and they're just going to, they're just going to demand. And then very important, it's going to be tough for local communities, especially in impoverished region to do it by them, themselves. So that's why at this point, it's just going to be very vital for international organization to really, really by all means to set, you know, step up their game and, uh, just 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 to, to to help to assist in any way you know starting with humanitarian assistance like in you know during the 93 to 97 we wouldn't i was there as a refugee we wouldn't have survived without international organizations and it gave a good result because you know we you know we kind of grew up we we work you know and we we do good things so that's the culture that we have so that's why if if if, if international organizations want to have some uh, let's say island of freedom people that's the way to you know to s- step up and help us so that's all i can say at this point great thank you well obviously a very complicated and 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 sad situation right now in gornobotikstan i'm sure we're all hoping that something that there's some progress positive progress that comes out of the region soon but i'm afraid our time for this podcast is at an end so once again i'd like to thank uh, zemira dildor bekova uh, Suzanne Levy Sanchez and Bakhtiar Safara for being uh, my guests tonight or today on the Medjlis podcast. A special thanks to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe to the weekly Medjlis podcast or the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter, you can do so by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much and see you next week. Bye bye.